mismarked. It should be Matthew 18, um, speaking of being distracted. Uh, because of some things that have unfolded in the fellowship over the last few months, it is necessary that I skip ahead um, in the gospel to rather a, a simple section of scripture that addresses one of the most difficult things to do in ministry. And, uh, and I'll get to that at the very end, but it requires that I go through uh, the Lord's instruction before I get to that place. Matthew 18, uh, verse 15 through 20. And so in the middle of the chapter, uh, as Jesus was providing instruction to his disciples, uh, he addresses the, the procedure for both restoring a sinning believer through repentance, but also excluding a sinning believer who refuses to repent. And as we go through the text, you'll see that the goal is always to restore and win people through repentance. But where there is a refusal to repent, Jesus requires that the unrepentant person be excluded from the church and that all members of the church avoid that person until they do repent. This ministry of restoration is something that actually happens all the time at Calvary Chapel, and it should be happening all the time, uh, at least in a healthy church, because the church is filled with people like me. Uh, a bunch of sinners, right? And we all falter in many ways, and we've been called by God to, you know, through his spirit to police ourselves, but sometimes it, it doesn't happen, and so uh, a good, mature brother, sister is to come alongside and, and bump us and say, hey, what's going on? And, uh, and most often, nearly every time, and I would say 99. 999% of the time, the sinner is restored through repentance. But that's not always the case. Some people, they get mad, they leave, and, uh, and only once in nearly 17 years that I've been here have I had to address someone's sin publicly before the congregation. And I'll tell you, it was by far one of the most difficult and painful things that I've ever done in ministry. It was hard on the church. Uh, but it was necessary uh, to obey the Lord's instruction. And so what we are going to cover this morning uh, from Jesus, it's really not, it's not optional for the individual believer. It's not optional for his church at large. Uh, we belong to him. The church belongs to him. He's Lord of the church. And we can't rightly say that unless we're willing to follow his lead, even when it hurts. Amen. And as we look at this block of instruction, Jesus, it's important to point out, he's providing an, an outline that doesn't take into account every scenario or circumstance, situation that may arise. Uh, he's not even uh, really all that specific because there are just too many things to consider. So this is more of a basic outline that is actually uh, expanded on later on in the scriptures as real life begins to happen. Uh, in the churches. And around all of that, the apostles begin to expand on this and um, make it more clear for us. Also, Jesus, he's not providing a template for what must be done in every situation where someone sins. For example, um, the sins of my children are dealt with in the privacy of our home, uh, where we, of course, we confront our children, we discipline when necessary, 
and restore. Um, I'm not going to bring Asher, my nine-year-old, up here because he disobeys and uh, it's just become a habit. Amen? That would be, that would be a bit much. Yeah. Or if, you know, Shandy, uh, you know, gets up on the wrong side of the bed and it's, uh, she's a bit unfriendly that morning, it's probably best to just, you know, give her some space rather than bring her before the elders. Um, <laughs> that would be a death sentence for me. <laughs> you know, uh, if someone in our church fellowship has just, you know, lost a loved one, a spouse, a child, a close friend, and they're just not pleasant to you, uh, I would counsel you to just kind of dust it off and, um, and show some, some mercy. People can oftentimes be under a lot of stress. They can be ultra-tired, not feeling well, and uh, they can say, they can do things that are hurtful. And typically, given enough time, they will regret it. And uh, I believe that we should allow them that time uh, to see what they've done. And uh, I think that's really the best medicine rather than getting in their face. Amen. Uh, it, it is always good to leave some room for the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives before uh, we stumble into a mess. And even as the Proverbs say, pull a dog's ear. How many guys have pulled a dog's ear? I had a dog, uh, Amos. I've shared stories about him. Uh, just the friendliest dog on the planet. And one day he was doing something that irritated me. And so I, what was available to me was his ear. And what was available to him was my hand. And he, he bit me. So that's what that proverb is all about. Uh, but Proverbs 19.11 says, the, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression when it can be overlooked. So rather than looking to this procedure uh, for sins of that nature, it, it's just... It's best to overlook petty sins. We don't want to be petty uh, towards somebody else's pettiness. A little grace and understanding goes a long way. Now, of course, if someone is consistent in their pettiness and they're hurtful and it, it just continues and continues, uh, it, it probably comes to a point where uh, they should be addressed in a godly manner. Also, the instruction given by Christ is uh, very similar in most contexts, but it changes depending on who the sinner is who the sinner is. And uh, for example, God holds leadership to a higher standard, and therefore when a leader is caught in sin, there is less tolerance if there is not immediate repentance. Uh, you know, this, this protection that is so often granted to sinful leaders is completely immoral and unacceptable. Uh, as we've seen in so many denominations, that a, a leader sins grievously, it's hidden, and they're moved on to another church. Mm, that is completely unbiblical should be addressed and dealt with quickly. And uh, also, in the scriptures, heretics and false teachers are shown less grace than the laity because of the great danger that heresy poses to the community of faith. Okay? So the template is, is followed, but it, it is altered depending on who the sinner is, and, uh, and I would even say uh, what the sin is as well. Uh, and there are, there's examples of that in Scripture. So as we go through these instructions, keep in mind that Jesus is not being exhaustive and uh, he's not addressing every possible uh, scenario that could come up. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. should have had one of the elders teach this morning. Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, 
you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Lord Jesus, we, we don't want to give you lip service this morning, but we want to yield ourselves to your instruction, trusting that, Lord, you, you know the best method to get the best ends for your glory and for the good of people. So, Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear and that we would have minds to obey. Lord, the conviction to follow your instruction, Lord. We would do it with humility, Lord, even fear. And, um, yeah, so just grant us grace this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, if you would. Return with me to verse 15. So Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and... Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So if your brother sins, now Jesus is not referring to a biological sibling necessarily, uh, but any believer in general, man or woman, and a similar set of instructions, Paul says, you know, anyone named a brother, that is uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, anyone that's named a brother in the context of, of unrepentant sin, and then the personal pronoun you, referring to the one sinned against, is in the singular as opposed to the plural because it doesn't matter who the sinner sins against. If they sin against a man or a woman, a child or adult, a leader or someone among the laity, it's all the same. You know, we don't allow one person to be sinned against while protecting another. Okay? So a believer has sinned against another believer in this Outline. So now, now what do we do? Well, when possible or appropriate or when it's safe, the person who was sinned against should go to the sinner in private, you know, to save face and address their sin. Or as Jesus says, tell them their fault. I know that we're often reducing sin to it was an accident. Well, there are accidents and there are sins, right? Yeah. So Jesus says, go and tell them their fault now, because Jesus is providing an outline, as we've said, and not a strict procedure, there are times when it's not appropriate or safe to have the offended person confront the sinner. And I think that as those scenarios arise, it dawns on us and we say, this would not be okay. Like, if a child or an adult was beaten, molested, or worse, it would not be okay for them to confront the offender alone or even in person. You guys agree with that, right? Okay, good. Or if a man made inappropriate advances on a woman, or vice versa, it would be foolish for the person to confront them alone. Now, I actually think that depending on the degree of a scenario like that, uh, an immediate public shaming is in order. That's my position. So uh, if a man in our church was being super inappropriate to a woman, and I saw it, I'd handle it right there, and my volume would probably be um, so that everybody could hear. Okay, uh, that kind of behavior is completely uncalled for. And uh, so depending on the degree, okay. 
Now, oftentimes, just the thought of someone confronting another person of the opposite sex in private uh, makes me nervous, regardless of the sin, unless there's clear safeguards and accountability. So there are circumstances where the offended person should not go in private to um, the offender. Now, the question is, what if no specific, no one specific is being sinned against, but a believer is clearly in sin, they're sinning, does that situation fall into Jesus' instruction? Well, of course it does, because we have all kinds of examples in the scriptures. When a believer sins, they, they don't just sin against themselves, as it were, they sin against God and the church. We also sin against the world, to whom we're to be a light to and an example to. No one sins without affecting others. Some examples are private drunkenness or you know, the use of altering, mind-altering substances, pornography, lust, hate, envy, covetousness, things of that nature. These can all be done in private, as it were, but it's still sinful. And if it's known to another believer, they should address them. Another one, what if two people are sinning together? What if they're sinning together? Like two professing Christians who are willing parties of fornication. Should that be addressed? Well, of course, we have an example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, professed Christian couple that, um, is, you know, they, they frequently get drunk together. Uh, or as surprising as this may be, they view pornography together. Uh, they embezzle money together. Or a professed Christian couple that they mistreat each other. And they have, you know, allowed their biblical roles to be swapped. You know, we don't count on, you know, partners in crime to confront one another, Right? We don't count on them to do that unless one of them perhaps has fully repented. Whenever grievous, unrepentant sin is discovered in the life of a believer, someone in the body of Christ is responsible to address it to the person, preferably in private when it's appropriate and when it's safe. Well, then what? We've told them their fault. Now what? Well, as Jesus says, if, if they hear you, that is, if they recognize their sin for what it is and they heed the call to repentance, Jesus says, you've, you've gained, that is, you've won your brother or your sister. Okay? You've actually arrived at the intended goal in what we call the ministry of reconciliation. And now that person can be restored to fellowship and to communion with Christ at his table. That's the hope, always, in a situation of confronting someone in their sin. It's not to shame them. It's not to push them away. It's not to tell them off. It's not to get something off of our chest. It's, hey, brother, I've noticed this happening. You, you've done this. You're at fault. And I want you to repent and be restored. That's the point. But what if they do not heed? Jesus says, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if the sinner refuses to repent, Jesus instructs us to confront the sinner again, but for the second encounter, we're to bring with us one or two other people as witnesses. And I would encourage you to bring uh, mature witnesses. <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit later. The matter, either way, Jesus says, because of the witnesses, is settled, is settled by the, the testimony of two or three witnesses. Every fact is established, and that's if the witnesses are credible. So when you select a witness to come along with you in the confrontation of the sinner, we must be careful in our selection. We want spiritually mature. We want objective people who don't have a bias against the sinner. They don't have a bone to pick, in other words. 
get people that are emotionally uninvolved. They can just look at the facts, the details, and they also have a heart to restore, to reconcile. Again, if the sinner confesses their sin and they demonstrate intent to repent, we have won our brother, we've won our sister, and they should be restored to fellowship and communion. But what if they persist in unrepentance? Then what? Jesus says, and if he refuses to hear them, that is, the original person who confronted them and the witnesses, he says, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So again, if someone persists, they refuse to heed the call to repentance, even in the presence of others who verify that the behavior is rebellious, it's, it's ungodly. He says their sin must be told to the church, the community of faith. He says must be informed at this point of who the sinner is and what they have done. And the question is, what is telling the church look like? Do we bring the unrepentant sinner before the congregation on Sunday morning to both services, tell the whole church, and then have the congregation command the sinner to repent? Now, I've, I haven't witnessed this happening, but I've been told of it happening to where the person is surprised by this on a Sunday morning. How do you think that went? Yeah. It's not likely that they will agree to come and stand before the congregation, not not even for one service, unless they're ultra-arrogant and self-righteous. But this would be unpractical, I think, for everyone. So how should this be done? The best answer for this is that the congregation and the sinner would hear from those who represent the church, the pastor, the elders, and others that might be involved uh, who were witnesses. These delegates would tell the church, and they would tell the sinner to repent. Now, there's, there's biblical grounds for this. Delegates often represented the church the local churches in the New Testament for matters of import. Just a couple examples. When those among the Samaritans were being saved in Acts chapter 8, somewhat of a surprise to the apostles, the church in Jerusalem, they sent Peter and John as delegates to Samaria. And then what they witnessed there was then to be reported back to the church in Jerusalem. Another example, when the Judaizers came to Antioch, they were teaching the Gentiles that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So the church in Antioch sent a delegation to Jerusalem to settle the matter. So Paul and Barnabas were selected among other unnamed witnesses. After the council met, a letter from the Jerusalem church was written, which Paul and Barnabas took to Antioch and then to all the churches of the Gentiles. And there was great rejoicing, Acts 15, 1 through 31. In the context before us in in Matthew 18, it's, it's most appropriate that a representative among the involved witnesses stand before the church and affirm that the sinner is unrepentant, like me or one of the elders. So here I am. But that's not all. Once we've come to this place where the sinner is unwilling to repent, even through the delegation of the board, Jesus prescribes a course of action for the whole church, for every individual in the church. Every one of us he says, must treat the sinner like a heathen or a tax collector. Now, the question is, what in the world did that mean in first century Jewish context? Well, heathens and tax collectors, they were excluded from the religious community because their faith and or their conduct was contrary to the will of God. They were excluded from the congregation. The Gentile, uh, the heathen, because he was an unbeliever, 
and the Jewish tax collector because he was a traitor to the nation of Israel. These people were viewed as perpetual sinners outside of the covenant of God's blessing, and therefore they were excluded from the faith community and all of the privileges that went with it. So what would that look like today, and why would Jesus want us to do such a thing? Well, as it turns out, the apostles, they followed Jesus' instruction when professed Christians would not repent. When writing to the Corinthians, Paul instructed the church not to keep company with any unrepentant people who claimed to be Christians. He says they were to be excluded from the fellowship of the church, 1 Corinthians 5.11. He actually used some stronger language in there. He says they were to be delivered over to Satan. That makes me a little nervous. <laughs> also to the Thessalonians, Paul instructed them to withdraw, to, to stay away from, to avoid and not keep company with any professed believer who walked disorderly and would not obey the word of God, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, and then verses 14 through 15. Again, to Pastor Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, Paul said, from such people turn away. So to sum up, the scriptures tell us to exclude them, not to keep company with them, not to speak to them, but to avoid them altogether. Why would Jesus want us to do that? Well, at a glance, uh, there's three reasons. There's the reason for what it communicates to the unrepentant, for how it admonishes the rest of the church, and for the protection of the church. As far as the unrepentant sinner is concerned, the purpose, as we've said, is not to destroy them or get rid of them, but to help them you know, come to their, their senses by experiencing the gravity and the consequences of sin. The intent is to jar them, to awaken them to their sin and repent, that they might be reconciled to God in purity and be restored to the fellowship of God's people, 2 Corinthians 5.20. And then for the church, the discipline of the unrepentant is meant to remind all believers that rebellion is serious and that there are consequences for unbridled sin. We see this in Acts 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 5, and verse 11, 1 Timothy 5.20. God is describing why we follow this instruction. And lastly, sin that goes unchecked in the church is, is, is dangerous to the fellowship. You know, just like an infection in the body is dangerous if it goes untreated. You know, bitterness, suspicion, gossip, and slander, they, they spread like cancer in the church when they go unchecked. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.17, and, and again in Hebrews 12.15. So Jesus wants to protect the church from danger. In similar fashion, we want to protect our children from danger. Amen. There's a person in our home that is a danger to our children. We have a moral responsibility to protect our children. And the church is no different. The pastors and elders have the responsibility to protect those in their care. So there you have what it means to treat unrepentant people, to do it like the Jews would do a heathen or a tax collector. And these are some of the biblical reasons why we do it. Let me continue in the text. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, once again, we have the discussion of binding and loosing. We saw that in chapter 16, where Jesus said, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys always refer to authority. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So in Jewish religious culture, binding and lo loosing meant forbidding and permitting. And here in Matthew 18, Jesus 
He places the concepts in the context of church discipline, placing in the hands of the local church and its leadership the authority to do two things, to discipline the unrepentant sinner and to receive them through repentance. And Jesus says that whatever the church binds or looses, that's forbids or permits on earth, the same will be done in heaven. Okay? That is, whatever the local church does in accord with Scripture in the context of church discipline, it will have the full support of God in heaven. That's what that means. And it only makes sense saying that the Son of God is the one who's giving this instruction to us. He continues, he says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, the passage now refers back to verse 16, where Jesus says that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So the facts concerning an unrepentant sinner, he says they're settled by the testimony of witnesses, and those facts are supported by God in heaven. And the question here is, what might these witnesses ask God uh, in agreement? William Hendrickson says that this, is, that this relates especially to prayer for wisdom in dealing with matters of discipline. Well, I can tell you that when the elders and I are brought into the context of someone's unrelenting sin, we pray and we pray. We often fast. We seek God for wisdom and mercy. We seek God for guidance, a course of action that will maximize his glory and provide the best outcome for the sinner and for the church as a whole. And he has always been faithful. Jesus concludes, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. We have heaven backing it, we have God backing it, and Jesus. Now, because we're still in the context of church discipline, we must interpret these words accordingly. Because I know that you've heard some of this stuff quoted in other contexts. Um, here it's when two or three witnesses to someone's unrepentant sin are gathered together for matters of discipline, consistent with the instruction and the character of Jesus, he is present with them. Jesus is saying that he is present, he's supporting, he's backing the decision that is made. He's there with them, confirming their obedience to his, his instruction. Now, I, I realize that I just trampled on how almost everyone uses and quotes the verse, but context, context must rule our interpretation and the application of every passage of Scripture. Okay, the meaning of all Scripture, all of it, is subject to its context. Otherwise, uh, all interpretation is up to us. We don't do that here. Okay? The Scriptures stand alone. Uh, they're not available for any kind of private interpretation. All right, now that we've looked at Jesus' instruction, it's, it's my duty to tell the church, as verse 17 says. But what I'm going to share with you now uh, it can't go over the live stream. Uh, so to those of you watching online, I apologize. Uh, but it would be inappropriate to publish this beyond the immediate fellowship this morning. 